Finley Toyota Studio, it's Cofield and Company. I want to have pasta in one corner and tacos, cantaloupe, <laughs> and top it off all with turkey gravy. I get shamed a lot, and it's completely unfair. Cost us $700 for 15 minutes with a guy who smokes through his mask. It's time for Cofield and Company with Steve Cofield on ESPN Las Vegas. All right, here we go on a Tuesday, crazy, crazy Tuesday. We thought the uh, big news of the day would be a little follow-up on Deshaun Watson and what would happen on MLB trade deadline day. It was a good deadline day, really good deadline day. We'll get to uh, what the pod squad did with uh, Juan Soto, but... Deshaun actually gets pushed to the back burner. We'll tell you why in just a couple of minutes. Deshaun Watson, which, uh, I mean, these now the clock's ticking. The NFL, based on yesterday's decision, now has, you know, like uh, two days. They had a total of three to file an appeal. Um, But it's going to go on the back burner for a little bit. We'll uh, ask our football insider from PFT Pro Football Talk, Miles Simmons, about Deshaun Watson and that whole deal in the 4 o'clock hour. Let's get to it. It's the three on Cofield and Company. So close to home, we've got the first NFL preseason game going down with the Raiders and the Jaguars in Canton, Ohio for Hall of Fame weekend. I know Adam's heading out there tomorrow. The Jags are actually announcing who's not playing. This Raiders side is kind of trying to be mysterious about it, as most teams do, but are you surprised the Jags are actually saying, you know, this guy and that guy is not playing? No, I think most teams do. I just think the Raiders and the Patriots don't for the most part. And uh, it was just a, it was a weird thing to see the tweets of, all right, these guys are not playing. These guys are not playing. It's very clear, like, Derek Carr is not playing right. in this game. But the secrecy is is so weird. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's an adjustment to get used to. Not that the old administration was, you know, out, out you know, forthright about everything, but uh, yeah, you hear this, and I, I actually did a, a spot in Jacksonville today, and they were asking me, uh, who 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 have they said is and is not playing? And I was like, I, I don't know. I was like, I don't think Derek is playing. He didn't play at all last year in the preseason, but they they their exact comment was, we haven't discussed that yet, which if you haven't, you should be fired. Right. That's that's a silly comment. Right. It's, it's insane. So Jags know Trevor Lawrence and Travis Etienne are not playing, and this is, I mean, Gruden was pretty secretive about it, but it's a, a Belichick family that's out here, so McDaniels is not going to reveal anything, and I'm sure, like you said, he's told all his coaches to be very uh, curt, short, and you know, dance around the questions, and they've done so. So Raiders getting ready for this game. What do they do today? They had a walkthrough okay. at the team facility, right. kind of going through some of the script and the plays, and I'm sure... You know, not not telling the players who's playing and who's not because they haven't discussed that yet. Uh, they haven't made those decisions right. yet. Uh, but I, I would imagine with the guys that are actually going to play, participate in the walkthrough, and then uh, got on buses, head on headed on over to the airport, and uh, took off for Ohio. So what to watch for? Quarterback rotation. The city get a lot of time. Jared Stidham is probably the two. Nick Mullins is the three. Chase Garbers is the four. Do they give? Stidham a lot of time. I would imagine Stidham to me right now, it doesn't look like it's a battle for the number two spot. Like he's got it. Uh, things could change, of course, but right now he's the number two and he knows the system. I don't think he needs a whole lot of time. So I would expect him a quarter at the most, maybe less. And then you would think that Garbers and Mullins, who are kind of competing for that third spot, um, although Mullins seems to be way ahead, 
they probably get the rest of the game and kind of sort sort their way out of who's going to be playing more. Mullins could probably only lose the job, right? Like he could play himself out of the job if he played like crap. I don't know what the salary situation is. I assume Garbers is a lot cheaper. Yeah. You know, is Garbers a better candidate to be a practice squad guy? They're never going to carry three quarterbacks on game day. No. Right? No, it would be, well, do you keep three or, or you keep one or two on the practice squad? Probably just one. If it's, if especially if it's, uh, if you throw Mullins on there uh, and he wins the third job, but it's more, can Garbers win the third job? I think more than anything. Right. I think you know what you have. Like, if you go to your th- third quarterback, the season is probably a trouble anyway. Uh, but Mullins has won games at this level. He's had some good spots. He's had some inconsistent spots as well. He beat, um, you know, or almost beat the Raiders uh, last year. So um, he's had some big moments in the NFL, but they kind of know what they have in him. And so do they want Garbers as a developmental guy, or do they want to keep Mullins as a guy who, hey, you could potentially salvage the season if you have to go to him, even if you don't want to. And then for O-line reps, they've got the weirdest O-line situation because really Colton Miller's the one guy who 100% has his job at left tackle. Everyone else is either playing to solidify their spot or in a heated competition for a spot, but you also don't want to have anyone go down with a stupid injury in a meaningless game. So who plays and how much do they play? Yeah, and you don't want to it's, – it's tough to judge a guy if you just say, hey, we're going to throw you know, Alex Leatherwood and potentially Brandon Parker out there with a bunch of backups – Let's see how you do. Well, part of playing on the offensive line is working with the guys next to you and in cohesion and all that. It's not just, it's not a drill where you just line up and block somebody. You have to work with those other guys. So how much do you want to play them together? And by the way, developments in that situation today, which read into what you want, I take zero from it, but they did release a death chart. And Alex Leatherwood was number one. So I I don't think that what? means I, know, I don't think that means anything. I love, I love depth charts. I know, especially great. when you're out there every day and you know what you're seeing, and then you're like, okay, that means something, <laughs> right? But it probably doesn't mean what you think it means. Yeah, it, it's yeah. We drew the par- I'll draw the parallel to, um, you know, UNLV football after the spring. Marcus Arroyo comes out with his quarterback depth chart, and they've got a transfer in from Tennessee. One of his guys coming in, Harrison Bailey. And then you look at the depth chart, and it's one, Cameron Friel or Doug <laughs> Brumfield. Technically, three is Harrison Bailey, and people are like, what is going on? Like, there's a lot of reasons behind what he's doing there. Yeah, and in this case, I I mean, who knows what they – who knows – by the way, who knows who even filled it out? Can we – but it also, could be can like we, an intern that filled it out. But can, uh, I don't know. But can we just read – that Leatherwood is one on the depth chart because he's going to play. No, because Carr is number one on the depth chart. He's, he's not going to play. I, I think oh, it's okay. more – look, I think everything they do is almost to just don't ask questions. And so I think it's, <laughs> hey, if we put Leatherwood first, n- nobody's going to ask us about why is Leatherwood not first on the depth chart. Like okay. it's, l- let's, just keep, let's just keep the questions to a minimum. Okay. Interesting. So I said Deshaun Watson actually goes on the back burner a little bit today as far as national NFL news goes because, you know, Raj and the league are juggling all these horses ass situations, some of them really serious, aside from Watson, but all these situations with owners. And you kind of forgot because Snyder, you know, we're, we're following uh, Dan Snyder's yacht on Twitter to find out where the hell his yacht is as he's escaped from the country. You know, we've got the Raider stuff that still has to be cleaned up with workplace issues. We've got the Gruden versus the league situation. I mean, a little bit, you know, off to the side was that weird stuff with NDAs and payoffs and people being fired with the Cowboys. I know I'm forgetting something else, but we, you know, we filed away Brian Flores in a really serious allegation. And then the Dolphins decision comes down and then something else that we had kind of discussed 
but it wasn't one of the bigger topics. It comes down that the Dolphins are now being penalized for really tampering. They were really making multiple runs in discussions illegally with Tom Brady. Yeah, and and Peyton. I mean, it's a whole and thing. And Sean Peyton. And and just to, uh, I don't want to sidetrack that, but as you mentioned, all the owner situations, you had another owner trending on Twitter yesterday, and you people forget about this, but number three trending topic on Twitter when I opened Twitter, Robert Kraft, because you've got the Deshaun Watson situation, so now Robert Kraft is back in the news for his indiscretions. Has to be. So, uh, I mean, that by, is... By the way, that that never left the news on, on this show. Yeah, I know. Because we've had those two guys tied together. And later on, we'll tie together because there's another element of the uh, Stephen Ross Dolphins thing. And, of course, that was the offer to lose games for $100,000 that the former coach alleged. I we got to tie that later to what's going on with Calvin Ridley. But first, yeah. on Brady, this is a six-month investigation and... Like, this was a serious run at the guy on multiple occasions, years apart. Yeah. When he was just with two different organizations. And so we'll, we'll talk about the gambling aspect of it later, but I also feel like this whole thing, it all ties together. And they went, they came hard on the tampering because I've saw a lot of people today say, doesn't tampering kind of happen all the time? Doesn't this happen all the time? Sure it does. But you know when you get punished really, really severely for tampering? When it's an ability to cover up the gambling aspect of it. So that's why this this came down so hard on the tampering side of this. So that everybody kind of ignores the, hey, he was just joking about the gambling accusations. The tampering is a real thing. It happens all the time. And we understand that. And it's it's bad. And what they did was real bad because they tampered twice with Brady and with Peyton when they're employed by other organizations. So this this whole situation is... It's, it looks horrible for the Dolphins. I think at some point they still might try to push Ross out, but I don't think they'll be able to. It's a it's a really bad scenario, and it's a really steep punishment for this. Hopefully puts other people on notice not to do it in the future. Uh, but it's certainly a penalty that the NFL had to come down hard on because they turned the other part of it into a joke. So they talked to Brady when he was with the Patriots, you know, when it was clear, not clear, when there could be a decision made that he was going to leave the Patriots and then they talked to him again last year because they probably heard what a lot of us hadn't heard, which is Brady and Bruce Arians. That was something was going to happen there, and that Brady might be looking, you know, looking to get out if Arians was going to stay the head coach. And that's where the Peyton thing comes in. So then there's a whole coach, quarterback, and then I, I don't even how, how does the how does the ownership thing come in? So. This is something like, that... Hey, guys, you can get some ownership. By the way, how long have we been talking... About, again, you say things that we've talked about on the show. How long have we been talking about this? This is not just a tampering issue. This is a circumventing of the salary cap issue. It's, hey, come down here and play. And we'll throw some ownership stake your way afterwards. So you're going to be invested in the team. We'll pay you a little bit less. We can bring other guys in. And we'll pay you this, this part of the team, which we've laughed about the Patriots doing for how long? Yeah. And assume that they did it. Obviously, the Nets tried to do it. Your your Nets uh, with Karolinko. That was a big story, you know, what, 10 years ago at this point? Maybe even more? Uh, that they tried to circumvent the salary cap that way. But this is not – It don't look at, at, at this as just tampering. This is tampering and an attempt to circumvent the salary cap. And how many more times have they tried to do this? How many teams have talked about potentially doing this? We're, we're seeing the punishment come down, and hopefully that dissuades other people from doing it. 
because it's a pretty severe penalty. But this is this is a real issue. <laughs> it's just hilarious. <laughs> All this with Ross, and he's still not on top of the worst owner list. No, I don't even think he's in the top half of the league. His behavior is probably more normal than than people think. the The throw in the games thing is interesting, and like you said, it got kind of tamped down in this whole deal. We'll come back and address that. But yeah, one and a half million dollar fine to Stephen Ross. He's suspended, which is the dumbest thing ever. Don't even bother. He's suspended until October from being around, you know, daily operations and then league meetings with the Dolphins. But Another investigation into an organization, and it's resulted in uh, not only the fine, but a loss of draft picks as well. Join the conversation on Twitter at ESPN Las Vegas. I'm all for anything that would protect them, you know, short-term and long-term. And based on what we've been told from the doctors and the scientists, this is an effective way to try to minimize that. So we're going to do everything we can do to follow the letter of the law on that. And our guys needed to get acclimated to it. But generally speaking, I think they've had a great attitude about it and we haven't had any issues. Now, back to Cofield and Company in the Finley Toyota Studio. Studio. Slamming and jamming on a Tuesday, uh, baseball trade deadline day. We'll we'll squeeze it in where we can, but football is king. And with all these investigations and owners getting smashed, fascinating stuff. Deshaun Watson, we're still waiting on what's going to happen with that six-game suspension. Uh, last couple of deals I saw in Major League Baseball, Whit Merrifield, who wouldn't get vaccinated unless he went somewhere that was actually competitive, is actually going to Toronto, so he has no choice now. No, he's going to the one place that you have to be vaccinated. So I'm sure he will. So the Royals move him and then uh, still waiting on names like Syndergaard and some other pitchers. And maybe uh, Inglesias, the uh, closer from the Angels, goes to the Braves. And, of course, the big news of the day, the pod squad gets Juan Soto. That was Josh McDaniels on the way back about those big puffy helmets, guardian helmets, which are now pretty commonplace. There's a whole story behind that, right? Yeah, they're actually, they're actually required for some positions uh, for the first two weeks of training camp. Both uh, offensive and defensive line? Yeah, and those close to the line of scrimmage, like some linebackers, some tight ends have to wear them as well. Um, really, they're, I mean, they're, they're testing them out. Uh, I heard a like a 45-minute interview with uh, Dr. Alan Sills, the uh, the head of um, medical issues for the, uh, for the NFL. And basically, they think that a couple of things. One, you can reduce the force by about 10%. So if both players are wearing them, it's about twenty percent reduction in force uh, when guys hit each other, uh, and you know the, they're working hypothesis, which obviously is not lab completely proven. It's tough to do, but that concussions for the most part, especially in the NFL, uh, a lot of them are uh, cumulative, so that the more hits you take, the more likely you are to get a concussion at some point. So they felt reducing the amount of force and hits you take early in training camp would kind of slow that process of getting concussions through the season. And that's kind of what they're working on. Um, it's one of the, it's one of those things like who knows if it's going to work or not, but they look probably more restrictive than they are. They're 12 ounces. It's, it's not, you don't, maybe you feel them or you see them and they look silly, whatever. Yeah. They're not hindrances. And you see some of the, I'll just say Neanderthals that play football in the NFL. One in particular for Philadelphia, which I won't say his name, but come on, man. Like he he went out on the field in bubble wrap on his helmet, like to make fun of this. Yeah. Uh, in thirty years, when and I'm totally advocating that you should be able to get health care for for any head injuries for, when you're in the NFL and you're a former player. 
But you might want to think back on this moment when you made fun of this and right. be like, oh, yeah, maybe I should have maybe taken this a little more seriously. Well, the NFL is taking what the Dolphins did seriously, but I think you and I believe they're kind of redirecting in phony fashion their anger. Yeah. So they find Stephen Ross, the owner of the Dolphins, $1.5 million. They've taken away a first and a third round pick. And this is all around tampering with Tom Brady when he was both with the Patriots and the Buccaneers. So 2019 and 2022. Then Raj comes in over the top, you know, jumps off the rope to drop an elbow on the Dolphins. But on the tampering thing, he says, investigators found tampering violations of an unprecedented scope and severity. I know of no prior instance of a team violating the prohibition of tampering with both a head coach and star player to the potential detriment of multiple other clubs over a period of several years. Well, I I would say it's probably happened before. I think it happens every offseason. I think there's early conversations. So, listen, rules are rules. If you want to smash the Dolphins, go ahead and do it. But I think, as you suggested 10 minutes ago, this is a beautiful smokescreen for the bull crap that Stephen Ross pulled where he told his coach, I will give you $100,000 to lose games on purpose because we want to lose and improve our draft position. That's what Flores said. They found evidence of it, and they came back with, it was a joke. Yeah. Ross didn't mean it. What do you mean? Yeah. The- he did. How do you – you can just arbitrarily determine he didn't mean it? Yeah. The joke – This is, this is grade-A bullcrap, and it's from a league that – Shovels a lot of crap in our direction. Come on, Raj and company. Yeah, this is, uh, as uh, Habib Magomedov once said, number one BS. Uh, (laughs) It's ridiculous. And if you're out there saying, wow, they really came down hard for this tampering thing, you're completely missing the story. What they're doing is, hey, look what we did for tampering. Hey, look over here. Oh, yeah, that fixing games thing. I forgot about that. Like, that's what this is. That's absolutely what this is. And it's insane. Now, I'll also get out of the way, first of all, have zero problem with trying to tank games because you should. You're doing what's best for the franchise. Now, offering money to do it, that's a really bad thing and an awful thing. You need to be on the same page in tank games if you're going to do that. But this that's what this is. The NFL has gotten far too – and I love sports betting. I love the sports betting industry. It needs to be separate. For, but the NFL is in bed with them now and they're trying to collect profits from it. And so they have to be aware of these sorts of things, and they can't have the perception that they're having teams that aren't trying their best. So they have to turn this into, hey, that was a joke, but look what we did over here with the tampering charges. Wait till the next tampering case. See if it's anywhere close to this, because it won't be. That's all this is. This is uh, pretty amazing, too. Anyone look at Brady and go, hey, why were you talking to him? No. He didn't do anything wrong? No, I saw that today. Well, tampering is not the, the subject. Like okay. you, you, I mean, you could you could take the text, you could take the calls. So if you're a willing participant. Yeah, I don't I don't I don't think that's an issue. And I saw, you know, I, I know uh our our old friend, I don't even know what his Twitter handle is anymore, Bruce N V was like, Oh, if he was still in the Patriots, they would have got him for this. No, it's, he's <laughs> he's the subject. He was he was the target. He was not the one that actually committed any Rules violations here. You can you can take a phone call. I mean, I don't. I would like to see exactly how far he went. Did he call them and say, "Hey, make me an offer"? That becomes a little bit different. But if he's just taking texts and taking calls and hearing what they have to say, I don't have a problem with that. So Brady, this offseason retired, then unretired, and then apparently agreed to a ten-year deal for 
$37 million a year with Fox, and now is part of a tampering charge with the Dolphins yeah, and I over have, the past three years. I have no doubt in my mind that if Brian Flores didn't file that lawsuit, that Tom Brady would be in Miami. You don't think the Bucks kicking Arians upstairs, granting Brady's request, which, by the way, this is another one of those undercover stories around the league. Brady was not staying with the Buccaneers no. if Arians was around because the more football insiders you hear, they're like, Arians just operates a different way. He, he just This is going to sound crazy. The coach doesn't have the work capacity of the player. Yeah. When have we ever heard that? Yeah. Where Brady's like, okay, dude, are we going to work or not? I'm 45. <laughs> You're like semi-retired. Come on, let's go. Which is, you know, all the all the things that drive you nuts about Brady, that's not one of them. That's the ultra competitor right there. Yeah. No, I think but I you know, I don't I don't know if the Bucks if if Brady had been offered a chance to get the hell out and back end ownership, maybe he would have taken advantage of it. We're gonna get back to this in the big five. Up next, though, Adam unearthed a really interesting podcast conversation with former Vegas Golden Knight, Patches, Max Pacioretty, who had some really juicy things to say about VGK and what sounded to me, even though he says this wasn't the case, what I think he's alleging that the Golden Knights of the last couple of years had a bit of a country club atmosphere, and that rubbed him the wrong way. And did he become unmotivated? He needed something extra. Finley Toyota. They'll do anything to sell you a car. No Toyota problem is too tough, too large, or too small. Keep your Toyota running like a Toyota. Live Golf, what they call it in business, is a disruptor. Now, sometimes the disruptor, Uber, eliminates the traditional business. UFC was a disruptor. They have not eliminated boxing, but made it less appealing to many people, myself included. I watch more UFC than boxing. Will Live Golf do what Uber did and eliminate the PGA? No. Will it be like the UFC and make the PGA less appealing to many? Yes. Now, back to Cofield and Company in the Finley Toyota studio. Studio. Well, that was interesting. I was driving, listening to our sister station, Fox 1340, Fox Sports Las Vegas, the middle of the day, and Joy and Heard stumbled on that convo about Tiger turning down live money. And Hurt seemed to be suggesting there very strongly that Liv is really going to make a difference and become a competitor with the PGA. Not destroy it. Not like Uber and Lyft versus cabs. But like UFC has done to boxing, where you know boxing has been knocked down lots of notches and UFC is a real competitor. So Liv, a real competitor for the PGA. I mean, I I don't know. I, I think it all still depends on what happens with majors. Like, do they let those guys play? And really, on, we only that's the only tournaments people watch anyway. There's four tournaments a year that people watch. Yeah, hard hardcores and betters. They follow every tournament, but yeah, yeah. The so, broad audience is for the majors. So it's can do people still get to watch them? And I I feel like, and I I don't follow golf closely enough to know. I could be wrong. I feel like it doesn't really matter outside of Tiger who's playing in the majors there's a couple of names that'll draw people in maybe right. of interest but it's really hey I'm gonna watch the Masters who's playing in it let's see and if it's Tiger the more people watch and if it's not 
you know, they get their good ratings. This is the Masters. Same with the PGA Championship, the 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 British Open, the the U.S. Open. That that's kind of what it is. So do those guys still get to play? We'll find out. Like it's clear at this point, everybody understands. Live is not trying to make a profit. They can't. It would be absolutely impossible for them to make a profit. So they're just trying to, you know, I think they're just trying to have a PR arm. It could be that they're. I don't know what their end game is. They're not putting themselves on TV. They're not selling really tickets. I saw Sports Business Journal said the streams, the web stream of Live from London to Portland dropped 30% and then another 12% in Bedminster this past weekend. Yeah. And and again, you're saying streams because that's what it is. You have to watch it on YouTube, which I watch a lot of things on YouTube. I I watch YouTube every day and I haven't turned on, I haven't turned on Live. So it's, it's a weird thing. I don't understand. Like I don't know what their end game is. I don't think a lot of people understand what their end game is. There's a lot going on. They're trying to get all these guys in, and then then what? Then do they try to get a TV deal somewhere? Maybe, but I don't know. So let's talk a little VGK. Make a left turn here. Patches basically was given away for Zippo. Salary cap casualty. I guess now he feels like he can speak freely. He was always a pretty good interview when he was around, right? Could be honest. Most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So he goes on a podcast, and he sort of backs up in strong terms what Alec Martinez said, because Martinez was made some pointed comments about losing a little bit of juice out of the locker room by not having guys like Reeves around. And Pacioretty goes on this podcast and says there just didn't seem to be a a sense of urgency. He didn't fear management. Now, I think you'll tell us that other players did fear management, but he didn't. He said the whole atmosphere from the Knights with management on down, maybe the guys, some of the guys he was playing with, to the market, the fans, the media, there just wasn't enough kind of zeal behind all of it to make it feel like there was some pressure here. Does that surprise you? Yeah, a little bit because of how strong he was about how much he loved that. And so just for for context of this, it's an hour-long podcast. 85% of it is talking about his time in Montreal, maybe less, 75-80% talking about his time in Montreal, and just talking about how overwhelming the pressure was every single day of your life. And he talked about that a lot in Vegas. He said how great it was to get here and to just say, oh, my God. I'm actually allowed to have a bad game once in a while. It's not nobody's trying to kill me. This this is great. And he talked about that many times here in Vegas. And now, as he's getting away, he's kind of saying, you know what, maybe that's not the best thing. Maybe, maybe that's not how things are supposed to operate. And so it, it's a little surprising that he's saying it, in that he was so strong about how much he loved that aspect of Las Vegas for so long while he was here. Um, but also it's, it's, he's looking for a new start, right? I mean, maybe now he's, he's trying to find that happy medium. Maybe that's what in his mind he's trying to do. Um, and I think there's also an aspect of this of, as you said, he, he, and a lot of the things that he said in this podcast, he absolutely was making it clear that he wasn't happy with management here. Hmm. Um, and I think that's also part of, look, his agent came out the other day and, you know, kind of took shots at at management here in Vegas, and I think he's trying to back up that aspect of it as well, and trying to put a lot of this on on management in in Las Vegas. We'll have the sound in the five o'clock hour. Patcheretti on a podcast mm-hmm. saying the uh, the atmosphere here is just too loose. 
Needs to be tougher. Everyone across the board has to have higher expectations. Has to get on the players. Okay. Interesting. You don't hear athletes say that very often. Giveaway time. Two tickets to check out comedy show. Anthony Bean, Chico Bean, is at the Mirage. It's coming up this Saturday. 10 o'clock show. You can grab your own tickets at Ticketmaster.com. But we got a pair of tickets right now for Chico Bean, Anthony Chico Bean. 364-1100-364-1100. Caller 7. Join the conversation on Twitter at Cofield & Co. I don't want to go that far and say that. I mean, obviously, uh, the black quarterback has had a battle to be in this position that we are, to have this many guys in the league playing. And I think every day we're proving that uh, we should have been playing the whole time. We've got guys that think think uh, just as well as they can use their athleticism. And so uh, it, it always is weird when you see guys like me, Lamar, Kyler, kind of get that on them and other guys don't. But at the same time, we're going to go out there and prove ourselves every day to show that we can be some of the best quarterbacks in the league. Now, back to Cofield and Company in the Finley Toyota studio. Well, I like that Pat Mahomes said that, recognizes it. You know, there's a lot of uh, D-bags out there who will say stick to sports, but that is sports. That is sports. You know what? It was sports back in your day, right? A lot of people are like, back in my day. Oh, you mean the day when Bill Russell was around, who always spoke up in the face of a lot of negativity? Well, Bill Russell passed away over the weekend at 88 years old, and we wanted to lean on someone who you know, knew him well, covers the Boston scene, has covered it back for years and years and years. He's going to be on the scene here, actually, uh, with a book signing in Vegas at the NABJ convention. Gary Washburn, Boston Globe, is up with Cofield and Company. How are you, sir? Good, guys. How's it going? Pretty good. Pretty good. I, I don't know. When you, uh, when you heard Mahomes talk about that, I mean, that has been a theme in sports for a very long time going back to you know the early 70s with African American quarterbacks and I'm I'm glad Mahomes said it you know let's let's once again let's you know face up against issues and continue to try to make progress Yeah I mean he makes a good point and I think that um obviously you know it's been an issue that's lingered throughout the NFL um in in, in many ways you know occupying certain positions in professional sports uh, could African-Americans be good coaches, good baseball managers, good quarterbacks, or do, are they better off being running backs and defensive backs? So obviously it's a, it's, a, it's a stigma the NFL has dealt with, obviously for many years, and the Colin Kaepernick uh, issue the situation makes it even more complex. Um, but it's good to see you know, Mahomes speak out on that topic because obviously NFL players in many cases uh, have, t- have tended to be quiet on, on certain social uh, and racial issues when they couldn't be because it's all about the shield. But I think uh, considering the power that he has and the money that he makes and that a lot of quarterbacks are making, Russell Wilson and, uh, you know, unfortunately, in my, my opinion, like a Deshaun Watson, uh, they can have the, the, the power to speak out a little bit more. So let's talk about Bill Russell because you wrote a story, and I know you've written many stories on Russell, but with his passing over the weekend, you you talked about him as being uh, the greatest winner in sports and life. I, I almost feel like we don't need to talk about sports as much as all the other stuff that he did in his life. Yeah, I mean, he's a, he just, I mean, there's so many things you can say about him, and then you would never, it never ends. Like, you would... All the compliments you could bestow upon him, there's something more you could say. Um, and, and that's what makes it a remarkable, amazing, amazing person who's lived, who lived a remarkable life. And he's on the Mount Rushmore of athletes who fused uh, athletics and social activism. Muhammad Ali, Arthur Ashe, Jackie Robinson, if you want to include Jim Brown in there. He's on that you know, pantheon. He's on that Mount Rushmore 
because, you know, it would have been very easy for him in, in, the, in the 1960s when, you know, African-Americans, those who were affluent were generally athletes or entertainers, and they could easily have that taken away uh, by speaking out. And he risked that. He could have, you know, said, hey, i got to feed my family. I'm living well. I don't want to, you know, as much as I have opinions on the Civil Rights Movement, on the Voting Rights Act, on the lack of black coaches in the NBA, you know, I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to lose my status, so I won't say anything. But he felt the opposite. He felt he had to say something. He felt he had to speak for people who couldn't speak for themselves, for people who looked like him but weren't gifted with, you know, six foot ten height and, you know, wonderful, you know, brilliant basketball skills. Uh, and I think that's what made him so relatable but also and someone so impactful. Do we have somebody in, in today's modern era that's like him? That's a tough one. Not really. I mean, you could say Colin Kaepernick, you know, uh, was unapologetic about it. And obviously you see what happened to him in the NFL. He was pretty much banished. <laughs> um, you know, although obviously, you know, you guys know the Raiders gave him a workout. I don't know how that went. Or obviously they didn't sign him, so I'm not sure how effective that was. But, um, you know, I think that, you know, there are athletes who have, who have made, you know, certain, you know, statements, and, you know, LeBron James has made certain statements, and, you know, but honestly, no, I don't think there is a, a Bill Russell uh, in today's NBA, or today's, sorry, professional sports landscape. And, you know, I wish there would be. I wish a lot of guys would speak their minds on these types of issues. Uh, I think the NFL, you know, had that for a while and then kind of, uh, you know, quieted it. You know, they did these, you know, it got to the point where what Jerry Jones was out there, you know, uh, standing on the field with arm in arm with his, and then that's when it got absurd when owners started participating <laughs> and, you know, and things, you know, said, you know, Jerry Jones, the pillar of the people, the man of the people, uh, you know, that's when it got ridiculous. But, you know, I, I think these, these guys are. It's it's very difficult in some cases. They they do have the financial power to speak out because they do make so much money and they are so important to the league. But they also don't. You know, some of these guys aren't educated as much on the topics. They don't want to risk their reputation. Um, so no, there. I don't think there is a kind of a equivalent. I would say uh, to Bill Russell. Should I mean? Does the money? Has the money kind of changed that, the ability to do that? Because so often I hear, because there are still issues to talk about and there's things to be outspoken about, but all too often I hear that greeted with, oh, you make so much money you don't even understand it anymore. Like there is that that counter that people have to that. And, and I think the money has kind of changed people's perceptions of maybe an athlete's ability to speak out. Yeah, I do. I think people say, well, what, do you, what kind of problems do you have? Right, you yeah. know? You're making forty-seven million dollars this year. You know it's hard to to listen to the to the issues of a Russell Westbrook, you know, <laughs> or someone who you know you know says certain things, you know, but yet they're paying you know a Kyrie Irving, but yet Kyrie's making thirty something million a year. So I think that's where, unfortunately, I think that Russell's generation. Were honestly more like the everyday man because they had to work off-season jobs, they had to sell insurance, they had to to work construction or whatever in the off-season. They were like WNBA players are now, right? You know, they didn't make enough money 
during the season to really support their families. They got off-season jobs. Now these guys have generational wealth. And I think the fact that we are able to just look online and look up how much uh, Derek Carr makes in the 27 uh, football season, you know, it, 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 it kind of pollutes, in a sense, their effectiveness because we know, oh, well, shoot, Derek, you know, what do you got to say? You make $37 million that year. <laughs> you know, lead the Raiders to a Super Bowl. It, it, we have learned because of our, our you know, knowledge of these salaries to judge players uh, off and on the field on their salaries. Gary Washburn up on Cofield and Company. We're talking about the legacy of Bill Russell. Gary writes for the Boston Globe, wrote a story about Russell. Um, the beginning of the header on your story, Boston had a complicated relationship with Bill Russell. Explain. Oh, well, he was not happy living there. I mean, he was his house was ransacked. Uh, his beds were defecated in by, you know, vandals during his time there living in a suburban Boston. He felt like, which was accurate, in those days, and people, we tend to glorify the past. And the Celtics were a fantastic team, 11 times 13 years. They did not sell out. Fans did not want to see a majority black basketball team. They... Uh, fans attended more Bruins games. The Bruins used to sell out, you know, <laughs> because the Bruins, you know, they uh, didn't have many players of color, obviously, back then. Um, so, they, you know, fans are more comfortable with the Bruins. They're not as comfortable with Bill Russell and Casey Jones and Sam Jones, you know, and Sat Sanders. They were not comfortable with a team that was half black. Um, and, obviously, Red Harback wanted to win ball games. He didn't care. So he put them on the floor but Russell resented the fact that his teammates who were white got endorsement deals, that they were, you know, lauded throughout the community, throughout the neighborhoods of Boston. And Bill was told, well, well okay, Bill, you want to live in Boston? This is the place that you probably don't want to move, you know, because of, of, of racism, of that your house will be ransacked. You're, you know, you will feel, you will get remarks. You will get, you know, he resented that out of the city. You know, and, and the city didn't help itself by having a, a terrible, in a sense, in the 60s and 70s, a terrible racial history. Um, so his relationship with the, with the franchise, not with the franchise, was fine. It was with the fans. It was with some of his teammates. He felt like, you know, I think there's this kind of glorified thing, you know, kind of bond between him and Bob Cousy. And he resented Cousy because Cousy, he felt like Cousy didn't, you know, uh, outwardly defend him and his teammate, black teammates, uh, from the perils that they faced playing in Boston. He felt like they, they, that was pretty much ignored. Though those guys just kind of kept it moving. That it, it, it wasn't acknowledged as much as it should have been. So he had some strained relationships, and I think the city of Boston eventually, over the last you know forty years, understood that and attempted to you know rectify that. You know, he was he was regal when he came to Boston obviously, in, in, in many years. I think he softened a little bit. I think some of the relationships that he had, you know, improved. Uh, you know, the city gave him a statue in 2013, you know, and, and I think that he, although he didn't want that statue or he would prefer not to, he appreciated that. He appreciated that the city said, okay, Mr. Russell, we get it, because I think he was mad that Boston didn't, you know, he wasn't trying to hear, well, it's going to take time for this to change. He wasn't trying to take, he wasn't trying to hear about, 
well, you know, you guys got got it pretty good right now. Just wait, it'll get better. He wasn't. <laughs> he, that wasn't acceptable to him. Right. And I think that although in Boston obviously has improved dramatically, but I just think there was some resentment. He didn't want to make people, especially white people, feel comfortable. He was unapologetically himself as a coach, as a man, as a player. Uh, he did not back down anybody, and I think that that ruffled some feathers. I wanted to close on this uh, at NABJ coming up this week in Vegas. I know you have a book signing on the way. You can talk about uh, the book and, and Spencer Haywood, but we're fascinated by Spencer Haywood because he's been around Vegas. We've had him on our shows many times, but the just a couple of, well, the, the role that was played um, in the Lakers HBO show and, you know, talking about chopping his wiener. And it was just like that whole thing was so wild. Um, you had a chance, you know, to write a book, uh, on Spencer Haywood, what was that like? There must be so many crazy stories because he's a fascinating man. Oh, very much so. I mean, um, obviously growing up in the cotton fields of Mississippi and actually picking picking cotton, and his mother picking cotton. I mean, this is not a this is not a joke or something funny or this is real. Like he literally picked cotton as a kid, born in 1949. So in the height of you know. Racism, the civil rights era in Mississippi. This is someone who's him and his mother and his family picked cotton, and that's why he went hardship so he could put food on the table for his mother, so his mother would not have to would no longer have to pick cotton in those fields because her back was bothering her. So, I mean, this is a man. I mean, sixty-eight you know, Olympics. You know, the leading scorer. Like, this is a man who's, who's kind of a real life Forrest Gump, someone who has been everywhere, done everything, played for the world champion Lakers, played in New York in the late 1970s, you know, uh, went to court, you know, for his case and was hurt by Thurgood Marshall. So, I mean, someone who was just fascinating. And, and his strengths and his weaknesses, I think you guys see it in winning time. Uh, his, his his character played amazingly by uh, actor Wood Harris, just kind of uh, the flaws, you know, having, um, you know, feeling like, ostracized by the NBA because, you know, it took him a long time to forgive the NBA for how it treated him after he went hardship and was allowed to play. He, he, he held on to that for a while because he felt like the league took a lot out on him and, and made him the poster boy for some of the problems in the league. And, you know, he was someone who, you know, had, was a very complex man and had a lot of sides. And it's, it's amazing to obviously still get to have a relationship with him in terms of just getting to know him. And that he was inducted into the Hall of Fame, and he's he's getting his just due when he's still here because he, he he had a lot of impact. And the reason that we have Kevin Durant, Kevin Garnett, and, uh, the late Kobe Bryant, and LeBron James, guys who come out straight out of high school or one year of college, is because of the fight and the battle that Hayward fought. Spencer Hayward rules is the book. You can get it on Amazon, and then the signing is this Thursday right here in Vegas at the uh, NABJ convention, 1230 to 130 at Caesars in uh, Neapolitan 3 and 4. I think I got all that information right. And uh, you, yes, and, Spencer, you yes, and Spencer will be there signing the yes. book, so that's very cool. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It's, you know, we, we released the book during the pandemic, so we've never done a book signing. So this is the first time uh, the two authors and Mr. Haywood have, have gotten together to, to sign the book, so it's a special time. Good deal. Gary, thank you so much, and uh, have fun while you're here in Vegas. Oh, <laughs> that's not going to be hard. Yeah. Uh, thanks a lot, guys. <laughs> All right, we'll see you. Thank you.
Thank you. There he is, longtime scribe with the Boston Globe, Gary Washburn. He's been covering the NBA forever and uh, used to talk to him on old sports fan radio network. Really good guy, lots of knowledge, and uh, he'll be doing that book signing uh, along with Spencer Haywood. And uh, Mark Spears also uh, co-wrote the book, Spencer Haywood Rules. Yeah, I really, the next couple of weeks, I really got to catch up on some documentaries about Bill Russell. Super fascinating guy. Um, there's so much to say about him. I was reading one line in the uh, the AP story. You know, this is a guy who, you know, look, look at the air. Gary was just talking about just all the negativity he faced. Winning all the time! <laughs> 11 of 13 titles. And basically he said, every time I came into an adversarial situation, I decided to take control of it. So that if a guy came up to me and tried to give me a bad day, I made sure that he was the one who left with the bad day. 